If you can open your Bibles, please, to Matthew 22. We're going to be reading a very famous passage from verses 34 through to 40 of Matthew 22. This is the word of God. Put yourself under its authority. Verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus is asked the question, which is the greatest commandment? And he answers in the way I've just read out. In other words, Jesus says categorically, on these two laws which he expresses, hangs all the law and the prophets, meaning all of the Old Testament, all that it contains. So these two laws that Jesus mentions are like a a washing line. All the different parts of the biblical law all the commands hang from this, wash, this washing line, which is about love. And what is love about? Well, love is another word to describe relationships, isn't it? And what Jesus, I think, is saying is this. If you want to think about how God wants society to be organised, or about how any organisation ought to be organised, the most important category category to think in terms of is relationships. Now, in our Western culture, our Western society, the word relationship has rather been uh, reduced down to boy-girl type relationships. But what I want to talk about this morning is relationships in a much broader way than that. For instance, let me give an example In our criminal justice system, is our criminal justice system simply dealing with the issue of guilt and punishment in some forensic sense? Or is criminal justice system about restoring the relationship between the offender and the victim, the offender and society? I want to suggest for your thinking, you can think about anything differently if you think about it in relational terms. And I want to suggest to you that Christianity is fundamentally a relational religion in a way that no other religion in the world is relational. Right at the heart of our belief system, we think of God as three persons, Father, Son, Holy, and Holy Spirit, who are in communication, relationship with each other. We hear from John 1, 
uh, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We hear in Genesis these words, let us make human beings in our image, male and female, he created them. So God is one, yes, but also God in three is three persons in relationship, in communication, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, in many Eastern religions, when we die, we are absorbed into the great nothingness. Forget about relationships. There's no implied unique relationship with anybody after you die, if you are a Buddhist or a Hindu. And I want to suggest that those kind of views feeds back subconsciously into our culture. And we start asking the the question, what's the point of investing heavily in a particular relationship if when you die, it's all reduced to the lowest common denominator? Christianity, I suggest, says exactly the opposite. When you die, every relationship you've got will reach its ultimate glorious fulfillment if that other person is there with you in eternity. In Christianity, we we speak about the fall, don't we? We use that term to describe what happened in the opening chapters of Genesis. It's a strange term, that, that, that phrase, the fall, and I have, over the years, spent a lot of time reading a man called Michael Schutler, who is, uh, used to be the head of a Christian think tank in, in Cambridge called the Jubilee Centre. And in that, uh, the articles I've read over the years, he's always suggesting that we should not talk about the fall. He should, we should instead talk about the rupture. Not the rapture, the rupture. Because those early chapters of Genesis are all about a broken relationship, aren't they? And the whole Bible story is about the possibility of that ruptured relationship being restored. Covenant is a word we read a lot about in the scriptures. And covenant is a word which describes a particular kind of long-term, committed, faithful relationship. Um, The biblical teaching is full of this kind of relational language under that word covenant. Righteousness is a word we often read in the scriptures as well, both Old Testament and New Testament. Now, we tend to think of that word righteousness Again, in a very narrow sense. But I, over the years, have studied this word quite carefully. And I've learned that this lesson, that righteousness is not merely about the absence of guilt. The absence of guilt in a legal, judicial, forensic sense. In other words, whether we have kept or broken some absolute moral standard. I've learned something new And it's this, the way the Hebrew mind in particular worked was this. When it thought about righteousness, it was thinking about right relationships. 
So I'm going to ask you, every time you hear the word righteousness in scripture, think also of right relationships. And the Bible defines what constitutes a right relationship between people in all kinds of different situations. Between a mother and a father and a child, for instance. Between a husband and a wife. And all these different areas of family life and community life in the scriptures, the Bible defines what constitutes right relationships by the word righteousness. It's fascinating to see that. Let's move on. When Paul tries to describe what the cross is all about, he keeps using the word reconciliation, doesn't he? That is more relational language. And eternal life, says Jesus, is not that you and I may sit on a cloud strumming a harp. No, he said eternal life is this, that you may know the Father and the Son whom he has sent. We have to think of eternal life as a developing and growing relationship with God. Turning to the Lord's Prayer, when it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, how do you understand that? Well, your will on earth, literally in the original language, says, your will be done in the land. If you read the Old Testament, the word land is a kind of proxy word, a substitute word for the people who live in the land. Society, we would say. And if you look at the prophets, particularly the minor prophets, Amos and Hosea, you quickly find they use the word land a lot to speak of the people, society. The Hebrew mind, you see, operates in very concrete terms, not in abstract terms as we do in our 21st century Western society. They do not use the word conflict, for instance. They use the word sword as a picture of conflict. They do not use the word society, an abstract term. They use the word land, people in the land, as a way of talking about society. So what Jesus is saying in that prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's saying, may your will be done in society, in the land as it is in heaven. And heaven is a community, the perfect community. So we are praying when we pray that prayer that we should reflect heaven. We should reflect the perfect community of heaven, which is, again, all about relationships. Christian lifestyle. If you can turn with me to a very famous passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 1 to 3. Paul writes this. These are powerful words. If I speak in human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I, can have, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. In that passage, and it's written elsewhere, of course, if our Christianity does not produce 
loving relationships, then in the end, we are wasting our time. And I find what Paul writes there and elsewhere, perhaps the most alarming thought in the whole of the scripture. Now, coming back to the Lord's Prayer for a moment, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That sounds great in theory, doesn't it? But so difficult in practice. And forgiveness, when you think about it, of course, is all about restored relationships. Again. And that comes home to roost, doesn't it? Um, often. For instance, I guess many of us experience this kind of, this kind of experience. You, you throw a party for, for somebody and you, you've got to decide who's to come to it. Is it going to be all the extended family or just a few of them? Who shall we invite and how do we uh, decide that? And then we start to think, you know, so-and-so who we could invite, well, she was nasty to one of our kids. We're not going to invite them. And you soon find out that there's no, been no forgiveness on particular issues. There's been a ruptured relationship. And forgiveness, of course, that's why Jesus spent so much time speaking about it, is very fundamental to the building of relationships. And it's so central to the ministry and teaching of Jesus. Now, when it comes to personal goals, I hope you've realised as you've read scripture Paul, the apostle, repeatedly talks about his personal goals in terms of relationship, particularly with God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, he prays for the Ephesians Christians in this way. I pray that you may know God better. And I want to suggest to you that's a prayer we can pray for ourselves and one another on a regular basis. He also prays a number of times in Philippians, for instance, in chapter 3, that he may know Christ. Again, knowing someone is about relationships, isn't it? It's about deepening relationships, finding out more about them, what makes them tick, etc., etc. So I want you to go away from this morning and think about relationships and where you stand in regard to the biblical teaching on relationships. I just want to point out, finally, two implications about Christianity being a relational religion. I want to draw out two very practical implications for you and I to take away this morning. First one, when we die and we go to meet God, how will God assess our lives? How will God judge as it were, the value of our lives. Now, my understanding of Scripture has led me to believe, I think that the questions God will ask us are going to be questions about our relationships. And that, to me, is quite an awe-inspiring concept. It would not be questions just about our family relationships, it will be about our work relationships, our church relationships. But that is where God is going to be interested. That's where I think the questions will be. If he wants to know about our work career, about the size of our house, what car we drive, 
how much pension we've received, what we've done by terms of achievement in sport or whatever. He will want to know about those things as much as they have affected our relationships. Often in our culture, particularly in business, we treat relationships as a means and money as an end. The Bible turns that around. It sees money as a means, relationships as an end. Jesus talks a lot about using our possessions and our resources in order to build relationships with one another. So I'm saying when we die, God will assess our lives on the nature and the quality of our relationships. Now, of course, that is why it's important to hold on to the cross of Christ. Because as we consider all of this, I guess we, uh, as we could think and consider our relationships, we often realise we have a problem, don't we? We don't uh, measure up to what the Lord requires. And therefore, we have to go to the cross and confess our shortcomings, confess our failings, and ask for a new love, a new desire, a new willingness to build relationships in every area of our lives. And that's my second point. Not only will we... uh, God has set our lives on relationships. But there is no sacred, secular divide on this issue of relationships. God looks at all of our relationships by the same criteria. Certainly God gives us advice on how we should prioritise certain relationships. But this is the point. Whether the relationships are at home or at the workplace, or in church, they are all guided by the same values, the value of love. They're all guided by the same principles. And therefore we have to think about our lives in terms of relationship in much more holistic terms. So there's no sacred, secular divide in any relationship we have. So... That's what I want to say this morning. But it's fundamental to what we do as Christian people. So let's pray that God may give us the desire, the willingness to build relationships in every area of our lives. Because that will speak volumes to a world out there. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And we recognize our shortcomings in much of what we've heard this morning from your word. We confess our shortcomings, Lord. And we ask you in your grace and your mercy and your kindness for the sake of building your kingdom that we may be a people who work hard, who pray hard for the building of relationships in our workplace, in our home life, and in our church life together. Father, hear this prayer. This is a big prayer. Because we know if if we can, to a measure, as it were, 
build relationships in the way your scripture shows us to, that your kingdom will come and your kingdom will grow. In Jesus' name we bring our prayer to you. For his honour, his glory. Amen.